I got a little man box, I don't know what you call it, on my dresser that's got a bunch of coins and pocket knives and cuff links and stuff in it. It's got a bunch of these little slips of paper. If I don't take them out of my pockets, then they go in the wash and they get all balled up and then you try to open them up and see what they say and they've become smudged and illegible. They become like a Rorschach test. They don't say anything on their own. They say something about you. They remind me, have you ever read that Sherwood Anderson novel, uh, Winesburg, Ohio? There's that doctor in there, Dr. Reefy, in that chapter paper pills or story paper pills. He's got these little paper pills. He writes down these philosophical truths, these pyramids of truths. He puts them in his apron. They float around in there and he pulls them out. He can't read them anymore. I don't know what's going on with that. Mine are um, drawings. I had to find a way to organize them somehow because they they bring me a certain amount of pleasure to look at them. I also find them in my notebooks. You know, I'll find notes on like a committee meeting and then I'll see a drawing. And I look at them. Some of them I have right here. I've got a a bed. I've got a frame for an awning. I've got a sketch of a corner shelf. I don't know. I've got all kinds of stuff. I've got a plan for a door, an exterior door for my garage. I've got plans for a little kind of sawhorse with some carpet under it to hold my boat while I try to move it around and work on it without damaging it. I've got a little another kind of little organizer caddy thing that's uh, for letters and stamps and stuff like that. And I've got some of them for like cabins and boats and things. But what's interesting about them, I pull these out and most of them are things that exist now. So most of them were sketches I made, sometimes with lists for the lumber yard. And most of them, or I guess most of them, those that I seem to find exist now i i built those things and i can look at the drawing and go like oh yeah now that bed's in my kids room now that shelf is holding a pot that was thrown on the wheel by my buddy and that sort of thing they make me think about the relationship between language and objects two things that fascinate me I think with Dr. Reefy, he used to read these truths to his wife and then they would turn into balls. He was like working on some ideas. He has some aspirations of writing a book about these truths. He's got this wife, young wife. He's trying to invent a life for himself and if he can just write it out legibly and repeat it and understand it then he can make it happen but then she dies and he has then lost his facility in turning those words into deeds I think what's interesting at a very basic level of like construction people realize that you have to draw something out 
or you at least have to visualize it and say what it's going to be, even if you do that internally, you have to invent the thing with language before it can become a thing, whether we're talking about a life or a door to go on your shop or a frame to sew a canvas on. Every object first existed as a word, so if you're going to make things, I guess, you better work on your skills with the tool of language if you want to work on your skills with the tool of things. I teach a class that's mostly for engineers. It's a, a humanities class, a literature class, obviously, but it's um, mostly for engineers. I think about them a lot. I I try to help them and work on their skills of language. and And I don't know if I I don't know if I improve them any. Many of these students, most of them are graduating seniors. I take this class last, sort of check it off before they walk out the door. But I will notice that they have a great program and they have, um, it's very project based and they collaborate with industry. They'll get people in industry who will give them a budget and they'll solve a practical engineering problem for those people. And I've always noticed that the team leaders of those groups and the people who end up getting the good jobs, the engineering student of the year award, the best senior project, all of that sort of thing are the students who are good with language. They're good literature students. In fact, they're often better than literature students. One, they're just sort of very successful in the in the sort of conventional academic setting. But also they have good analytical minds and they can understand the relationship between parts of a thing and the whole thing and, and sort of understanding those relationships and the complexities of those relationships, I guess, is at the heart of literary analysis. And so it doesn't really matter if these students are looking at an object or a piece of language. They're looking at it in the same way. And I want to assert that the reason they are is that they already understand, even if only implicitly, that their skills with language are the main thing that are helping them invent those objects and create those objects. At a sort of radically practical level, when they're in a room with the people who <laughs> they're trying to get to give them money to work on this project, and one of them's like, I got a great idea. And they're like, okay, what is it? And the guy points to his head, you know, it's in here. Doc Brown style, I guess, from Back to the Future. I don't think that inspires a great deal of confidence, but when the student says, well, your problem looks like this, and I aim to solve it in this way, and then I think that that student has a particular advantage um, getting funded for the project, frankly. I know this is a generalization and a stereotype, and it's probably not you know, completely true, but I think women are probably better engineers, potentially, because I think they're better with language. I think it's probably not too much of a stretch to say that, that women are better with language. I mean, that's probably why there are so many in English. It's kind of interesting. I'll go to, 
I've, I've walked out of English major classes that had a couple of guys in there to um, this GE class where it'll have a couple of women in there. But the female engineers that I've known through there have been incredibly competent at the study of language and the study of of, uh, of literature. And, and I assume they're also competent in their majors and, and probably, you know, they need to be because it's probably a tough environment for them. You know, they, women represent less than 20% of, of undergraduates in, in engineering programs. So it's, uh, it's not a stereotype or a generalization to say that they're not really in that area of the sciences for whatever reasons. And those reasons, I want to argue, um, are social. It's, of course, entirely possible that this is all wrong. You know, like an old country song, it's all wrong, but it's all right. That song was written by Dolly Parton, by the way. Got to work her into every podcast one way or another. You know, anthropologists think that language is about 200,000 years old, and we know that we have tools that are millions of years old, two and a half to three million years old. We only have art that goes back, you know, figurative art, 40,000 years. So how people did these things before without language, if they didn't have language of some kind, is, is hard to tell. But, you know, it's also just because we haven't found records of things doesn't mean they didn't exist. We keep discovering new things. And, you know, I mean, I can't find stuff I wrote down yesterday, so stuff gets lost, I guess. You know, um, tool making and language are thought to make us human, and yet we also understand that crows, for instance, have tool making, language, a conception of death, and funeral practices. So when, when crows make tools, not only do they have language to make them, but they uh, can use language to uh, perfect the tool and project that into the future. There's a fascinating video where they leave a little bucket out and a, and a little thin piece of wire, and it has some grubs in the bucket. The bucket has a little bale on it. Crow flies up and looks at it, pokes his head down, tries to get the grubs, can't get them, looks around, picks up the wire, tries to stab the grubs, can't quite get them, looks around, and there's some little corners on the, on the uh, edge of the stand or the display that they're making this on. Looks like a blacksmith, like a fullering tool or something. And uh, the crow bends a hook into the wire, and he tries out a few different things, and then he eventually lowers it down, hooks the bale, and hauls the, hauls the grubs up and eats them. Subsequent crows come and skip the initial steps and just bend the wire. Clearly what's happened is that the other crows have been told in language how to make the tool. There's a study at a university where they 
and wanted to see how crows responded to certain things. I, I don't remember the exact context of it. I, I was very into this a while ago, but they would have um, one group of people would harass the crows and the other group of people would leave them alone. And they had Nixon and Reagan masks, and this was in the 1980s, and those masks were around everywhere, and they were easy to get. And the reason they started to wear these masks is because the groups that were harassing the crows, those students would get uh, attacked. The crows would follow them around campus and hector them and shout at them and follow them around, and so they needed to find a way to disguise their identity. So it turned out that the... I don't. The Nixon mask people harassed the crows, and the Reagan mask didn't, or something like that. I don't know which was which. Um, and and anyway, so they conducted this this research, and then it turns out that still, if you wear the wrong mask, the descendants of those crows will also attack you. They've passed on cultural information through language over time. So I'm just suggesting that it's possible that human language has to be as old as human tools, at least in some form, because there has to be some sort of conceptual process, a process of visualization, and that visualization seems to be a type of language and a type of communication. It also seems unlikely that if you could make an adze out of a piece of stone and fasten it to a stick, um, and then those spread around a particular area, and, there's, and the dissemination is widespread, it seems unlikely that one person made all of them or that the others were made simply by emulation. It seems that there may have been at least some kind of crow talk that I'm ready to call something like language. On the other hand, maybe a visual um, analysis of those things was able to create them, and maybe a, maybe language developed out of tools rather than the other way around, and that, I guess, would support the timeline a little better. I, of course, don't know a great deal about this. I'm just making this up. But it's fascinating because toolmaking and language are so, so interconnected. And so I would also suggest that conceptualization, visualization, and the creation of anything are, are so, so interconnected. And I think that that's why making is so fundamental to who we are as human beings because language is so fundamental to who we are as human beings and they're inextricably bound up with each other. And so for the sake of argument in this podcast, I want to suggest that the marks a tool leaves on the workpiece is language. When I lived back east, I worked on a lot of old houses in Marblehead and Salem and, and the area. And in Marblehead, you could go down the streets and see the houses sort of laid out by century. You'd see houses that were built in 1650, 1750, 1850, 1950. And they sort of filled in the spaces in between, and the differences in construction were really interesting. They had a sort of similar uh, design aesthetic, but all of the houses built before 1900, of course, were uh, post and beam houses, and they had these giant beams that were tenons together, and you could go into the basement or the attic or you know some of the unfinished spaces, and you could see the raw framing out there, and you could see the method of the the method of construction. The 
the timbers for the houses built in the 1650s were sawn out in a pit and then smoothed with an adze. And you could see those vertical saw marks on them. And you could see the and you could see the um, adze marks where they'd clean them up and where they planed near the joints. They'd tin in these giant timbers together and usually pin them with a with a trunnel, as they called it, a tree nail, a, usually a locust dowel. And these things are just sitting on top of the ledge by the seashore, and they're just solid as can be all of these years later. When you start getting up into houses that are built at the end of the 19th century, um, then balloon frame houses or stick-built houses start to be more common, but there are also some post and beam houses still, and you can see circular saw blade marks on some of those timbers. Um, and anyway, the, the tools have written on the on the surfaces um, their method of work, and you can see how they work from that. In in archaeology, they often you know they study the object um, to see the mode of work. But the fact is, you know, that we have tools that are so much older than anything that survives them. I mean, the, the tool itself is older than the work it has done in so many different cases, and we don't know. The, the hard thing, you know, the tool sort of survives the soft thing. I published a poem recently, or it's coming out soon. It's a, called Mortis, and a lot of my poems are about woodworking, and I wonder, like, why is the word death in that term. A mortise is the way these giant timbers are pinned together, but it's also a way like a door frame or something can be built where there's one piece of wood narrowed down into a tenon, they call it, and there's a hole in the opposite piece of wood, usually a you know rectangular hole, and uh, that's called the mortise, and the tenon goes in there and is either glued or pinned and it's a really good solid joint. So maybe, you know, it's sort of like that expression, dead as a doornail. It's it's dead in there. It's not going to move. It's pinned. So that's probably good. It also, you know, woodworkers used to always try to work to a hundred year standards. So gonna, the work's going to last for a hundred years without needing, you know, maintenance or or rebuilding. And, and uh you know, so maybe it's going to outlive you, too. It's going to leave a record that is beyond you. But then again, like the the tool might last longer than the, than the work. In my poem, I, 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 I'm reflecting on seeing a ball of concrete, like for a fence post. You know, you put a fence post in the ground, you pour concrete around it. Well, the fence post had completely rotted, and it had a perfectly square mortise through the through the uh, ball of concrete and it's like well that the concrete can last forever but it doesn't do the work anymore it's a record of something that used to be but the something is gone i compare it to a wedding ring that's missing you know obviously the finger that it was intended to because the gold wedding ring will last forever but the finger will be gone so so i don't know i mean i think that maybe I don't know where this leaves us in terms of thinking about tools and language, but the tool, I think, outlives the work that it does in a lot of cases. And you can learn a lot by it. You can read it. You can interpret it. I'm, I, I think 
the reason I'm fascinated by material culture and the reason I study material culture is because when I see these things, I see all the sort of, um, I don't know what I want to call it, like, you know, artistic ambition that I see in a painting or a sculpture and I see it focused on something practical and then particularly when you see a tool because you can see that often in people's tools they've they've uh, used care uh, and intention and even art artistry of design and constructing the tool you see these hammers you know like jewelers hammers and then they're finely engraved or gunsmiths hammers or machinist hammers and they're finely engraved in there and it's like with a the craftsman wants to show off you know the work in the tool part of it's a calling card you know like hey I here's the kind of work I can do and here's what it looks like um, and then part of it is also just a sort of like combining together the work and the thing that the work does in an interesting way something that sort of uh, can preserve both of those things at the same time for long long after the person is gone from the earth and i think that that's the essence of what language does and what language is so i just want to say um, however we get here tools are language